Okay, I'd love it if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, and we're going to be there just later in, in our time. Um, but, but I'm so excited about the opportunity that I have to teach through the Nicene Creed. I never thought that I would say that, but I'm, I'm so excited because there could not be a more important time in the history of our world for those who say they love Jesus to work out what they fundamentally believe. There could not be a more important time because this world is experiencing shaking in a way that probably we have never experienced it, certainly not, not for a very, very long time. In AD 325, a bunch of Christian thinkers, the greatest minds in Christendom, got together, invited by the Emperor Constantine, to try and work out what everybody fundamentally believed. Christianity had gone viral. I mean, like everyone was believing Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Like 50% of the known world were saying we're followers of Jesus, but no one was exactly sure exactly what everybody else believed. They didn't have a Bible yet. They had a whole bunch of different scriptures. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had a whole bunch of gospels, some of which were really kosher and some of which weren't kosher, if that's a sayable word. And, and, and then there were a whole bunch of letters written, particularly by a guy called Paul, and the people were trying to work out what is God's word to us and what is just an interesting idea. And they came together in a place called Nicaea in northern Turkey on the, on the Black Sea. And they decided to work on a canon of scripture and a creed. The canon of scripture was to, 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 to identify what is God's word to us that we could stand the weight of our life on. And the creed was like a pair of spectacles. It was like they said, well, we need a way to be able to view this word. We need a way to be able to interpret this word. We need to be able to see what this word is actually saying because otherwise we've just got this word and people will believe a whole bunch of weird and different things. We need to be able to articulate and anticipate who God is and what God is doing. And so they gave us this incredible creed. That interestingly, Christians of every flavor, every size, every shape, Baptists, even Baptists, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, churches with no name, they've been believing this for nearly 2,000 years. And they've been repeating this stuff. We believe in one God. And then we talked about what it meant that God is called Father. That he's got all this power, he's omnipotent, he can do all things, he's omniscient, he can see all things, he's immutable, he never changes, but it all comes in the skin of a dad. And then we talked about the fact that we can't really know God until we've seen Jesus. And we see Jesus, we see what God is like. And Jesus is fully divine, but he's also fully human. And that's really important because if he was just fully divine, he couldn't really understand us and he couldn't relate to us. And he certainly couldn't save us, but because he's fully human and fully divine, we find ourselves in the middle of what God is doing in this world and we talked about who Jesus is and today we're going to talk a little bit about what Jesus has accomplished I want to pause for a moment and I want to remind you why we're doing this there is no doubt at all that we're in a, a, an era of unprecedented shaking there are wars there are famines there's terrorist threats how do you, how do you get your head around Trump how, how, how do you get your head around Donald Trump? How do you get your head around Yemen? How do you get your head around Syria? How do we begin to make sense of Brexit? How do we understand independence, not independence? How do we, how do we get our head around a changing world? How do we do that? And, and it's absolutely true that there have been times of shaking ever since the world began. Yeah, there have been wars, there have been movements of people, but there is a difference right now. The difference is in, isn't in how much the shaking is happening. 
The difference is that we don't seem to have a secure foundation to stand the weight of our life on while the shaking is happening. Because we don't really know what we believe. We're not really sure how to interpret these things. This shaking is happening in in, an unprecedented time of philosophical and political uncertainty. We're realizing that state socialism doesn't work. But neither does liberal free market capitalism. We're beginning to work out that secularism doesn't work, but neither does religion. That pluralism has its own problems as well. And we've got this kind of crisis of worldview. We don't know. We haven't got spectacles. We don't know how to read the signs of our times. We don't know how to interpret what's going on. We don't know how to answer the key questions of life. Who are we? Where are we going? What's wrong with the world How can we fix it? And all those questions are left unanswered by our thought systems. Let me really quickly just try and demonstrate that. Almost certainly in this room tonight, there are two different dominant worldviews. Largely dependent upon when you were born and the context of your life and where you were born. For those who are older in this room, you know, those people older than me, Kind of, I'm probably in this category. Those people older in this room, modernity, modernity is the general worldview. What's wrong with the world in modernity? Well, religion is wrong with the world. Belief in God is wrong with the world. Everything that comes with that kind of old school belief in God. But science has the answers. We're all about human progression. We're going to get better and better. We're interested in the betterment of society. And it's in our hands. We're masters of our own destiny. Our slogans are make poverty history. Feed the world. Let them know it's Christmas time. Modernity as a worldview is is interestingly pretty much dead. What killed it? Well, two world wars killed it, for starters. The fact that we're not actually getting any better, we're getting worse. The fact that we're quite happy or seem quite happy to kill millions and millions of people. Perhaps the problem is not out there. Perhaps the problem is in here. And so modernity is kind of dead as a philosophy and a worldview. And then along comes post-modernity. Almost everyone under my age, like 30, um, thinks, (laughs) thinks this way. There must be more to life than modernity. There must be more to life than a system of views that you have to believe in, one stacked on another. A generation rose up who said, we we were looking for another story, another narrative. What's wrong with the world? Well, modernity is wrong with the world. If we want total human flourishing and total universal flourishing, not just the people, but of everything, we have to reject overarching narratives. We have to reject, there is no such thing as truth. You can't say this story is truth because there is actually no such thing as truth. Truth is relative. It's your truth. It's my truth. It's anyone else's truth. You can engage with a narrative in whatever way you want to engage with the narrative. And here is the problem. Postmodernity is dead as well as a worldview. Philosophers and intellectuals are beginning to realize that post-modernity is, is dead. They're after something they're calling post-post-modernity, which gets a bit silly. But then it's dead for three reasons. Firstly, it didn't work. Post-modernity didn't, didn't actually answer the problem of evil and suffering. In, in fact, evil and suffering seems to have gotten worse, worse, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem to get better. It just seems to get worse. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't actually work. Secondly, f- it's, uh, post-modernity is philosophically flawed. 
and people are realizing it. So you can't, you can't state that there is no such thing as definitive truth because that's a definitive statement of truth. It doesn't work, does it? You can't say, there is no such thing as definitive truth because actually you've just begun to articulate what you say doesn't actually exist. That philosophically, it doesn't work as a worldview. And thirdly, if you take away the overarching narratives, you're actually left with nothing. You belong nowhere and you can't work out who you are. And so this huge pressure in our world at the time with economic collapse, the greatest migration of human beings since the fall of Rome, Putin in Russia, Donald Trump trying to win in America, Europe changing and shifting, nationalism on the rise, with all these things is being played out, not just on the BBC or on Sky or on CNN, it's being played out in a world which is feeling world view less. It doesn't know who they are. There is no anchor for our soul. <laughs> there is nothing on which we can stand that we can be 100% sure that this is truth because truth doesn't exist. So where do we stand? What is fundamentally important? What is beyond post-modernity? And, and the whole assertion for this series, the whole reason we're doing this is because I have this hunch that what is beyond us is behind us. That what is beyond us is behind us. The secret is not to find a new clever way of articulating how the world works and how we fit in with the world. The secret is to re-engage with the story of our world, the only story that makes sense of all our stories, the only narrative that makes sense of our life, the only narrative that has answers to the, to the world in which we currently live in, the story of God, the story of love, the story of hope, the story of truth. See, there is a story that's written in this world and it's written on your heart. It's a story of a God in heaven who makes sense of this world who makes sense of design that's perfect, who makes sense of something out of nothing. The story of a God who is perfect in power and beautiful in relationship. The story of God who is seeking a free and loving and true relationship with the people that he has created. And the story of a people who've rejected that. The story of a people who've run away from that. The story of a people who've put God in the rearview mirror and driven in the opposite direction. And, and then wonder why they can't find wisdom and they can't find purpose and they can't find love and they can't find life because it's in the rearview mirror. They drove away from all those things. This is the narrative of our world. For God who doesn't leave us there to stew in our own juices. A God who has an incredible rescue plan. A God who sends his son into this world to say, this is what I'm like. This is how I love. This is my compassion and my truth and my mercy. And, and this is what I'm going to do about the mess you find yourself in. A God who sacrifices his own son because he loves his creation. This is the overarching narrative of our world. This is what we've been trying to rework forever. This is the story of our world. And in 325 AD, the greatest minds in Christendom gathered together to make sense of the story that they not only knew, but they'd, they'd, they'd had written in their hearts. How do, we, how do we find a lens to articulate this 
stuff, which is so fundamental. That how do we find something that the people of God can put the whole of the weight on the belief in their heart, that they can base their life on this stuff and it can be the authority? So that when the shaking comes, they're not thrown around. When the shaking comes, they totally know who they are. When the shaking comes, they totally know what to do. When the shaking comes, they get to be the ones who shape in the shaking. Because they have something to stand on that is firm. And that was just an introduction. Sorry. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here we go. We're going to take a look at the the next clause in the Nicene Creed. I'm going to take a look at Jesus and what he did. and It's going to come up on the screen and we're going to read it together. Just that clause. No, not that one. We'll come to the Bible in a minute. So let's read together. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Look again, for our sake. We get to play right in this. This is the, the I want to focus tonight on, on the resurrection of Jesus. Not because it's the only thing in that, in that clause of the Nicene Creed, but because it is the fulcrum point, the pivotal point of the whole of this story. If God did not rise from the dead, then this is a piece of nonsense. If Jesus it was still somewhere in a tomb in Palestine, this is a total piece of nonsense. We sing songs, we pray prayers to a God who isn't listening. We sing songs about a God who doesn't exist. We, we do things in the name of a God who, who it's, it's all lies. We read this, we read this book and it's, it's a pack of lies. It's not true. It makes little sense unless he is risen from the dead. I want you to focus on one clause, one line. According to the scriptures according to this which is, it kind of stands out doesn't it I mean the rest of the creed just reads like a flow you could almost write a, you could almost write Hillsong could almost write a song about this in, in the middle there but in, in accordance with the scriptures it's kind of jarring isn't it it doesn't kind of flow I wouldn't have put that in there but they, they put that in there because they want to say a number of things let's read 1 Corinthians 15 1 through 8 and let's remember that this is Paul writing, Paul who has encountered the risen Jesus, flesh and blood Jesus, risen from the dead Jesus, alive Jesus. He says, now brothers, I think he also means sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then read from verse 12. And this is is like 
Paul's argument. In the, in the, in the first part, he's saying, this really happened in accordance with the scriptures. There's no doubt. Historically, it happened. We've proven it again and again. This happened. And then the second part, he's saying, this is why it's important that this happened. This is why it's really important that you get this, that you don't leave this place tonight without thinking, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world. I totally get it. That's my job. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men and women. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead according to the scriptures why did the the creedal framers want to say that why does paul want want to say that i tell you give me two really quick reasons why they say that i think they're they're trying to say the creed is not extra to scripture it's not it's not some kind of uh opposition to scripture and it's not something that you can use instead of scripture the creed is just supposed to unpack and be a lens through which you can view scripture scripture is where the authority of everything is do you know the the enemy of god's number one tactic is to have you making the authority of your life something other than God that's what he's trying to do he's, just, he's, he's subtle and he's sneaky but what he's trying to do is to, is to make us make culture the authority of our life you know, he wants us to read the, book, the word of God through the lens of culture and say well does this stack up to what we see in, in, in our world or, or he wants us to make tradition the culture of our life or he wants us to make feelings the, cult, the, the, the authority of our life he wants us to make reason the authority of our life but, but the framers are saying no 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 scripture is the authority it's not just authoritative it's the authority you can trust in it you can stand the weight of your life on it that's the first thing they're trying to say and the second thing they're trying to say is just this check out scripture check out scripture because the richness of the commentary on this story in scripture will not just blow your mind it'll change your life check this book out God's got a book out it's got good stuff in it check it out it will change everything and so let's just study together Paul says this is what happened according to the scriptures and this is what it means the resurrection of Jesus reframes the whole deal before the resurrection death was to be feared and life was fragile, temporary and limited but because of the resurrection life, eternal life in a relationship with God is now not just a dream it's a proposal it's possible And it's available. We can live forever. According to the scriptures. The tomb was purchased. The guard was set. The stone was rolled across the tomb. According to the scriptures. 
the body was gone. And according to logic, the guards didn't remove the body because they had paid for it with their life. And the disciples didn't remove the body because they were petrified and locked away. And the people didn't remove the body because the, the guards were there. According to the scriptures, God's son, perfectly divine, perfectly human, did what he said that he would do. He rose from the dead. A dead man walked. And that's what makes sense of how so many people began to believe in Jesus because they saw him, they met him, and he changed their life. They experienced the risen God. According to the scriptures, he appeared to the women who were grieving and didn't really know what was going on. He appeared to two unsuspecting disciples on the road to Emmaus who weren't expecting him to show up at all and didn't even realize it was him. He appeared to Thomas who certainly doubted and didn't actually understand what was going on at all and didn't want to believe. He appeared to disciples who were hiding because they were afraid. He appeared to a crowd 500 at one time which means it probably wasn't a hallucination. He appeared. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures. He's alive. He's here. He changes stuff. He's God. According to the scriptures, says Paul, those who believe this are to be envied above all people. I think this is fascinating. Those who believe that Jesus is actually physically alive are to be envied above all people. And Paul does this argument. It's a close argument and you'll have tried to follow it. He says there are six things that would be in shambles if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Put your eyes down, get your notes out. Here we go. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. This is a piece of nonsense if Jesus isn't alive in here. Secondly, verse 14 again. And your faith is in vain. You banking your life on God showing up and this story being true and it actually working for you, not just now, but in all eternity, is a piece of nonsense. It's foolish. It's vain. Thirdly, if Christ has not been raised, verse 15, we are found to be misrepresenting God. I am a false witness because I'm testifying that God raised him from the dead. We're liars. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Logic being this, the death of Jesus might have paid the price for your sin. But actually, if he's not alive, then it wasn't true in the first place because he's not God. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves without doubt that he is the son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, you are still in your sins if he's not, if he's not alive. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, your granny... Your loved one, the person that you know loved Jesus and you're banking on them being in glory, it's not true. It's not true. It's it's a nice thing to say at a funeral, but it's not true unless Jesus really raised from the dead. Verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all men and women are to be the most pitied. We're the saddest people on this planet and everyone laughing at us has every right to do so. If Jesus is not raised from the dead. And then Paul does this really cool thing. Verse 20. He reverses the whole thing and says. But it is true by the way. Just in case you thought we were all a bunch of losers. And we we, we celebrated at granny's funeral. And thought it was great. And no, 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 no. It is true. It's okay. We win. We're on the winning side. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Do you know. um, 
it was very intense this evening, but so a little aside. Um, one of the things I hate most in life is a little rant. I hate mobile phone contracts. I hate when you have to renew mobile phone, particularly when I have five women in my house and they always send me to go and... I don't know why they do it, because I am the worst negotiator on the planet. I go in with a plan that I'm going to play hardball and I just accept whatever offer they offer me first. I'm totally used to this. But why I hate it, because I always feel as if I've been totally conned by the deal. I always think I've done a good deal and then I go out and think, oh my word, I never know whether it's better to buy a phone and then a SIM card or whether you buy the whole deal or whether you're getting stuffed by the company. Or I tell you what I did do, I went to a network provider whose shop was next to another well-known retailer who sells mobile phones and discovered that the network provider was almost twice the price of the shop next door that didn't provide the network. I got really mad with that. But I hate it. I hate it when my kids want, you know, it has to be rose gold or whatever it is. I have to go and do this negotiation. And I do this thing. But what I discovered is this. For my girls, and probably for me if I'm honest, there are two things that are fundamentally important as far as your mobile is concerned. The first is connectivity. You do not want to be with a duff network that doesn't work in the country. Do you? You want to be connected 100% all the time. You want great coverage. You want great connection. And secondly, the second important thing is you want unlimited. Don't you? Anyone who wants a phone, if you can possibly afford it, you want unlimited. You don't want to be always checking whether you've gone over and it's going to pay a load of money or whether you're going to run out of juice or run out of data or you, or you need to find another hotspot or someone Wi-Fi to connect to or whatever it is. You, you basically want total connectivity and you want unlimited. I think that's true of human hearts. Think that's, I think that's true because that's why you're, you're wired that way by Father God. He wired you for total connection with the Creator. You were made by Him and for Him with a God responder mechanism in your heart and life. And you will never find rest and you will never find peace and you'll never find purpose and you'll never find wisdom until you find your rest and your peace and your wisdom in Him. You were made for total connectivity, but you were also made to be unlimited. You were not made to be limited by sin and death and hell. You weren't. You were made to be unlimited. And so your heart is craving unlimited. It's craving freedom. It's craving being able to run with the dreams that God has somehow placed in your heart. And you're not sure that you can run with them. That's what your heart is craving. That's why you find yourself frustrated. Because you're craving connectivity and you're craving freedom. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have both in all eternity. Check out, check out Paul's, Paul's argument here. He's saying there is, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is someone that you can trust in absolutely. You can totally trust in Jesus. Everything else is shifting in this world, but he is still standing. You know, I believe that deep in the heart of every person, there is a longing for someone that you can count on. Someone that you can put your faith in. We want it because we were made for it. We find relationships frustrating because we were made for this perfect relationship. Listen, the death of Jesus proves his love for us. And the resurrection of Jesus proves his power over every enemy of your life. Every limitation in your life. There is someone that you can count on. And secondly, Paul argues there is something that is true in this world. 
Postmodernity will say there is no truth, it's your truth, my truth, whatever truth you want to believe. You, you decide what truth is. But, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ says there is truth in this world that you can stand the weight of your life on. There is truth. The apostles are not speaking falsehood, they're speaking truth. Our, our young people are being taught that there is nothing that is truth which provides them with no anchor for their soul and no standing in the storm. But there is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, the definitive way for you to find life, hope, future, and a relationship with God. The definitive truth that you can stand the weight of your life on and you can be sure about the life in all its fullness. Not a pretend life, not a sham life, not a I'm having fun life, but real life that changes everything. There is truth in this world and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proves it thirdly Paul says because of the resurrection eternal life is available those he rose because he rose those who have fallen asleep and died are actually alive which is a crazy thing to say I know Paul's saying that, he's saying, you know, because he rose, those who fell asleep in the Lord, in other words, those who died in the Lord, are actually alive. They're they're not walking around right now, but they're actually alive in Christ. Because they believed in him, they put their trust in him, they cemented their life to his. And because he is alive, they are also alive, and they will be alive in all eternity. So when you do, when I do a funeral for someone who knows and loves the Lord Jesus... It's not just a platitude that I can say, you know, now he or she is with Jesus and they're hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because I fundamentally believe that. That there is the, the moment that they are conscious of a different reality, they're conscious of the fact that they are fully alive, more fully alive than they have ever been. Because Jesus rose from the dead and we are to be envied. If Jesus isn't alive, we are the most sad people on the planet. We're a bunch of saddos singing sad songs, believing in untruth, and it's a piece of nonsense. But because he is alive, we are to be the most envied people on the planet. All our obedience, all our love, all our self-denial is not to be pitied, it's to be envied. Because it provides us with the greatest security and the greatest adventure, the greatest certainty, the greatest significance, the greatest value. And in all eternity, we are free and we can live with confidence and boldness. It's true and I'm going to trust it. Therefore, I live with no fear. I don't need to live with fear because fear has been defeated because he rose from the dead. I don't, I don't need to live with anxiety because he hold, who holds the future holds me. And he's alive and he's here. And he's bigger than any boogeyman that's coming around the corner. He's alive. I don't need to be concerned. I don't need to live in negativity. I don't, need to, I don't need to embrace a cultural norm where we, say everything, we look at everything negatively. I can look at things positively and I can see a world where God is on the move and he's doing something. I don't have to live in poverty thinking. I don't have to live thinking it's not for me and it's not for us and we shouldn't have a big dream. I can have an incredibly big dream because he's the king of big dreams and he is alive. And he loves to support the big dreams. And he loves to underwrite the big dreams. 
And he weds all the power of heaven, all his omnipotence, all his omniscience, all his immutability, all his, he does not change, gets wedded to the fact that he calls us into something bigger than ourselves. We're to be ended. There is more potential in this room to transform this city than in any room that meets at any point in the week because he is alive and he walks. He is alive and he lives in you. He is alive and he's already placed dreams in your heart. He is alive and he's given you skills and he's given you ability. He is alive and he's called you to be an incredible businessman and he's given you kingdom blueprints for how that works out. He is alive and he's called you to be a politician, to change the way in which politics works in our nation and he's given you kingdom blueprints for how that works out and all the power of heaven is wedded to the dream that he's placed in your heart and he is alive and he walks here today and he's called you to be an incredible educator to, to ask the right questions so that kids can find out exactly how they learn and how they understand and how they grow he is alive and he's called you to be a leader of leaders who doesn't just build big institutions who builds big people because he is alive and death has been defeated <laughs> and hell doesn't have the final word because we believe because we believe I have no idea how we're going to land the plane. But that's it. You were created for connection with the God of heaven. For relationship and for intimacy. You were created to walk in the cool of the day in the garden with the God of the universe. And that's just a mind-frying thought. That's why you were created. You were created to be unlimited. To have life that starts now, life that goes on forever. To reach the fullness of all the potential that he's placed in you. And to run with your dream. You were created for purpose. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead makes it possible. Shall we pray? God, once again we pray a wheat and chaff prayer. That which was just fleshy and of the preacher, would you blow it away on the wind so that it doesn't affect us in any negative way. But that which was of you for our hearts, would you sink it deep in our hearts that it would give us boldness, confidence, hope and faith to embrace this world with a new perspective in a different way. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your victory. And we thank you for everything that it means for us. That we are the people to be most envied in this whole world. Thank you for the story. That there is a God in heaven who loves me. So much that he sent his son for me. And his son died for me and his son rose for me and I can have life in all its fullness. Jesus, we worship you.